0: Well, this is a fun day for lots of reasons. I enjoy church history, so I enjoy Reformation Day, but for some of you that have been around since the beginning, you will know that we have now gone through all five, or after today, we'll have gone through all five of the solas. In 2019, when I candidated, I preached out of Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, and we went through sola fide. And then when I came in 2020, we went into sola scriptura, and we have gone through all five of them now, and so next year we'll reset and And start over. But today we're going to talk about Solus Christus, or Christ alone. More than 500 years ago, the Augustinian monk, Martin Luther, nailed his 95 theses to the church door at Wittenberg, in the Wittenberg Castle. Luther was born in 1483, the son of a German miner. And after what he received, he believed to be a divine intervention, a thunderstorm uh, of God calling him to the ministry, he left law school to his father's chagrim and became a priest in the monastery we see that luther struggles with god and what it means to be a christian and how his sins are atoned for and at the same time we see that the church is at an all-time low this is a dark period for the christian church the gospel has been veiled in rote religiosity. The, the, the sermons are in Latin. The whole service is in Latin, so the common person would go in and not understand virtually anything of what's being said. The priesthood was often more of a career choice than a calling. If you're a, a poor peasant and you want an upscale of life, an upgrade of life, you could become a priest and get better food and, and, and some learning. Corruption infected the church, Forgiveness of sin was even sold at a price, the indulgences which caused Martin Luther to write his 95 theses. He was a pastor, and he was a, a good pastor, and he didn't like his people being taken advantage of and sold indulgences when forgiveness of sin was free, as he could read in his Bible. And so the, Luther, the pastor, wrote out these 95 theses, or reasons he believed the church was off base off track and nailed him to the door hoping for a scholarly debate among his fellow pastors and theologians and what ended up happening was the protestant reformation it set europe ablaze in controversy but the true gospel was recovered the bible was translated into the language of the people and churches that wanted to follow the bible and wanted to follow the true gospel broke out all throughout europe and england and and switzerland and and the netherlands all these different places matter of fact, we can say that we sit here hearing a, a sermon in English because of how God used Luther's Reformation. The Reformation's message can be summarized into the five solas. Man is saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, and all of it is found in Scripture alone. Now, one of the things that led to the Reformation was Luther's trip to Rome. And he saw the license of the church there. So Luther is an Augustinian monk, and there's a dispute within the Augustinians. And they decide that there needs to be a a conclusion found in Rome in, in an audience of the Pope. And so the two different sects of Augustinians send their representative. One sends some guy that, you know, I don't know his name, maybe it's out there somewhere. And the other sends Luther. And so Luther's excited. He's a German. He gets to go to Rome. It's the holy city. And he's on his way to Rome, and he's walking. And one thing he notices, as he gets closer to Rome, the food at the monasteries that he would stay in seemed to get better. And we learn a lot about Luther's character on this trip, because he's a man that takes serious his calling as a Christian. He takes serious living out the Christian life. And when he arrives in the holy city of Rome, he finds the opposite. He finds that in Rome, they have ignorant priests that don't really understand what they're saying. He finds they have incompetent confessors. He finds that the priests would say the Mass seven times faster than Luther could say it. Why did they do that? Because they charged for the Mass. More Masses equal more money. So if they learned how to say it real rapidly, they could get more money. There was a great irreverence among the clergy. The food was more extravagant than the priests. There were even brothels for the clergy. In fact, a priest would consider himself more virtuous than his brothers if he limited his activity in the brothel to women. Luther said, if there was ever a hell, Rome was built on it. And so as we think about that story of Luther and Rome, and as we think about Amos 6, Right? We think about uh, the darkest period, one of the darkest periods of church history, and then we think about the darkest chapter in the book of Amos. We should ask ourselves, am I comfortable? Are we at ease in our context, or are we people living for God? Or are we at ease? Are we on autopilot? Are we living for ourselves, but trying to hold on to this title of Christian? trying to hold on to this title of God's people. In Rome, these so-called Christians were comfortable. They were at ease. They were, they were living as if there was no God, but claiming to be His people. In Amos, we find another people who claim to be God's people, but are at ease and comfortable. One commentator states that today's passage is the darkest passage in the whole book. This will be the, the real low point of the sermon series as far as man's sin. Amos was a prophet from Tekoa, the country of Judah, and he is called to preach to an idolatrous people in Israel, and he is called to call God's people back to faithfulness. And as we think about the Reformation, uh, another call back to faithfulness, a back to the Bible movement, and our passage in Amos, we will think today, about the fact that the Bible teaches that our salvation is in Christ, in Christ alone. That Christ is the only thing that can save us from the depravity of man. Would you look with me in your copy of God's Word to Amos 6? Amos 6 starting in verse 1. Woe to those who are at ease in Zion, and those who feel secure on the hill of Samaria, the notable people and the first of the nations, those the house of Israel comes to. Cross over to Calneh and see. Go from there to Hamath, then down to Gath of the Philistines. Are you better than these kingdoms? Is your territory, is their territory larger than yours? You dismiss any thought of the evil day and bring in a reign of violence. They lay on beds inlaid with ivory, sprawled out on their couches and dine on lambs from the flock and calves from the stall. They improvise songs to the sound of the harp and invent their own musical instruments like David. They drink wine by the bowlful and anoint themselves with the finest oils, but do not grieve over the ruin of Joseph. Therefore they will go now into exile as the first captives, and the feasting of those who sprawl out will come to an end. The Lord God has sworn by himself, this is the declaration of the Lord, that the God of armies, I loathe Jacob's pride and hate his citadels, so I will hand over the city and everything in it. If ten men are left in one house, they will die. A close relative, a burner, will remove his corpse from the house. He will call to someone in the inner recesses of the house, Any more with you? And that person will reply, None. Then he will say, Silence, because the Lord's name must not be invoked. For the Lord commands, The large house will be smashed to pieces, and the small house to rubble. Do horses gallop on the cliffs? Does anyone plow there with oxen? Yet you have turned justice into poison and the fruit of righteousness into wormwood. You who rejoice over Lodabar and say, didn't we capture Carnum for ourselves by our own strength? But look, I am raising up a nation against you, house of Israel. This is the declaration of the Lord God of armies. And they will oppress you from the entrance of Hamath to the brook of Arabah. This is the word of the Lord. Father, thank you for your word. God, we pray that you would illuminate your word to us this morning. Guard my mouth, guard these people's ears. God, let your truth be made known. Help us to see the depravity of man and the glorious truth that we are saved by Christ and Christ alone. We pray it all in his name. Amen. Man is fallen, and salvation is by Christ and Christ alone. And in this passage we find four reasons why mankind needs Christ. First, man has a self-indifferent or has an indifference towards God. Man is self-indulgent. Man is prideful. And man has a court date with a righteous judge. First, man is indifferent toward God. I mean if you look at the passage I won't read it the first three verses again, but you, when you look down, just let your eyes fall on it. The first word we see is, woe. We're going to talk more about that, but this section opens with woe. Woe to who? Woe to who? those who are at ease in Zion. Those who are secure or comfortable in Samaria. Here we find the careless indifference of Israel's leading society members. They're saying, it's good. It's all right. It doesn't matter. They're at ease in Zion. They feel secure on the hill of Samaria. Both Judah and Israel are indicted here. They forget the surrounding nations like they're the only kids on the block. They dismiss the idea that another country could come in and take them over. They're just indifferent. They're unconcerned. They're comfortable. We could easily speak about a rich society that doesn't fear God, a a heathen society and say, look at those people. But remember, these are who? God's people. Church, in what ways are we indifferent, unconcerned, and comfortable? If we read church history, we see that persecution can come quite quick. If we read world history, you can see that the luxury you enjoy can go away real fast. If you read the local news, you'll see that life could end a lot faster than your pride will admit. It's like the prophet Don Henley said, in a New York minute, everything can change. Now, irony here is that these people only feel secure for the same reason we, we feel secure, because God has bestowed upon us some earthly blessing, some medical technology some some structures around us that allow us to live in a secure way and we forget the one who gave them. Rather than being thankful and faithful for what God has given, our nature is to tend towards self-indulgence. So the second thing we see is that man is self-indulgent. Look at verses 4 through 7. They lie on beds inlaid with ivory, sprawled out on their couches, and dine from lambs from the flock and calves from the stall. They improvise songs to the sound of the harp and invent their own musical instruments like David. They drink wine by the bowlful and anoint themselves with the finest oils and do not grieve over the ruin of Joseph. Therefore, they will go now into exile as the first of the captives, and the feasting of those who sprawl out will come to an end. So you just picture these people, right? Just laid out on their couches, on their lazy boys, reclined back, right? They're snacking incessantly. They're just sprawled out. They're inventing new songs, right? It says here they have so much free time that they can invite new, invent new instruments and new idle songs. And that's not to say that you know, creative music is bad in and of itself, right? David used music to praise the Lord. The problem is these people are using music to party, and engage in depravity. There's a difference, right? Like David, but not like David. Like David in that they're inventing new songs, not like David in that they're not inventing them for the Lord. They drink wine by the bowlful. I mean, think about the guy, the, the, the party animal, going up to the bowl of wine and just tipping it back. Excess. They douse themselves with good smell goods, ocean... Uh, lotions and oils and perfumes but they don't care about the state of Jacob they don't care about the state of God's people how many of us identify with these indictments you say well I don't drink wine by the bowlful." okay what about the rest of them how many of us spend our time lying about on couches and lazy boys talking about what we deserve rather than faithfully serving the Lord How many of us are overindulgent and gluttonous in our eating habits? Maybe you don't spend time idly making up new songs on your harmonica. There's another one. You're like, aha. But how many of us idly spend time with this thing? Too much alcohol? I don't do that. What about too much Mountain Dew? In what ways do we indulge ourselves and and, and live as though we have no fear of God? We spend frivolously on our looks with lotions and makeups and jewelry and this and that. Some of you say, you're meddling again, preacher, and I never like these sermons when you do that, but God's Word demands that we consider these things, doesn't it? God did not create us to be self-indulgent and comfortable. He created us for His own glory and to praise Him and to be faithful to Him. And we don't like to hear those things. We don't like to hear that we're self-indulgent because of our own pride. Look with me, the third thing. Man is prideful. In verse 8, we see that the Lord swears by Himself. This is a declaration of the Lord, the God of armies. I loathe Jacob's pride. And I hate his citadels. I hate his, his fortresses. He's saying... And I'm going to hand them over in the city and everything in it. God announces here, friends, He says, I hate Israel's pride. He hates prideful man. And He swears by Himself that He loathes Jacob's pride. Charles Bridges says, a proud person is Satan's throne and an idle man is his pillow pride is is me focusing on myself pride is israel boasting and we are the people of god like they did something to earn it you know elsewhere we read in the scripture he says you were like a an exposed baby left laying in a field and i took you in god says i took you in and i clothed you and i clothed your nakedness and i cleaned you up and now you're acting like this they're proud of what they did. Did we not defeat these guys? Did we not do all of this? They boast in their strength as if God did not constantly uphold them. They boast in what they did like Nebuchadnezzar walking on the top of his fort. Friends, pride is deadly. This week, Sarah and I got to have a date night. We haven't had a date night in a long while. It was a lot of fun, you know. I, I love going on dates with my wife. And I don't just say that because I'm a pastor. Like, I really do. She's actually really funny when we get alone together. And I cherish every single one of those we have. And I thank you for those of, who watch our kids. But we attended this, this, this Trooper uh, Benefit concert thing for the, the Fraternal Order of the, the Troopers. And they had Billy Dean come and sing. And I don't know how many you know Billy Dean, but y'all forget because I don't talk like it anymore. But I'm from Harrelson County, Georgia. right? And my granddaddy, had a Billy Dean cassette tape in his F-150. So I knew that song, I Miss Billy the Kid, from like, since like 94, right? And so I got kind of excited, right? It was enough to make me want to grow a mullet to go listen to some 90s country. And we put on our cowboy boots and we went out, and it had a lot of fun. It was a smaller, intimate concert, and I really enjoyed it, but there was one kind of annoying part. In between every song, old Billy would say, you know, this song right here won me about three Grammys back in 97, and uh, so-and-so said it was such a great song. Or, you know, I wrote this song over here, and I haven't recorded it, but, you know, Lone Star did. And, and it seemed like in between every song, he told us how great he was. Well, I already thought he was pretty good. I thought he was less good after he bragged on himself for an hour and a half. You know, it's like, for those of you who don't know who Billy Dean is, if you've seen Paddington 2, right? It's like Felix Buchanan, the bad guy, And he's always finding ways to talk about his awards in his award room. And he says, you know, I was sitting in my award room the other day, which is quite large, bragging on himself. Friends, pride is the kind of self-centeredness that is not only unattractive, it warps our thinking. It warps our thinking. Thomas Watson, the Puritan, said this, Pride is spiritual drunkenness. It flies up like wine into our brains and intoxicates it. It is idolatry because a proud man is a self-worshipper. Man, I read that. It's like the best quote on pride ever. It's like wine going up into our brain, intoxicating ourselves with ourselves, and we cease to worship God as we should because I'm thinking about how good I am. That's Israel right here. And God says, I loathe it. I loathe it. Because we cannot speak of a holy God and talk about how great we are at the same time. We cannot at the same time praise the Lord and praise ourselves. We must not become intoxicated with ourselves because we have a date with a righteous judge. And the fourth thing we see is that all men have a court date with a righteous judge. Look with me at verses 9-10. through And if there are ten men left in a house... They will die. A close relative, a burner, will remove his corpse from the house. He will call someone into the inner recess, call to someone in the inner recess of the house, any more with you? And that person will reply, none. Then he, he being the, the burner or the close relative, will say, silence, because the Lord's name must not be invoked. We read this story, friends, about this house full of corpses. It's dark. It's dark. And there are a few theories on exactly what this means, but there's an overarching meaning that is clear here, and it is God's divine judgment. God's divine judgment on the pride of Jacob. A judgment so severe that we see a command to be silent and not to call on God for mercy. Why? Because it's too late. Time's up. You had your chance to repent. You didn't. Don't call on the Lord's name now. His name must not be invoked. Look with me at verses 11 through 14. For the God commands, the large house will be smashed to pieces and the small house will be to rubble. Do horses gallop on cliffs? Does anyone plow there with oxen? Yet you have turned justice into poison and the fruit of the righteous into wormwood. You who rejoice over Lodabar and say, didn't we capture Carnum for ourselves with our own strength? But look, I am raising up a nation against you, house of Israel. This is the declaration of the Lord, the God of armies. And they will oppress you from the entrance of Hamath to the brook of Arabah. The king of the universe decrees right here, from the large house to the small house, judgment's coming. Judgment's coming. We read that for every chapter for the past several weeks. God will judge sin. God will judge rebellion. And Israel has done the unthinkable. They've turned justice, something that is good, something that is righteous, something that the Lord loves. They've turned justice into poison. They've turned righteousness into bitter wormwood. How? How could those who have received God's unmerited grace, the story that we read in the Bible of of an abandoned baby in a field, been taken in and cleaned up and clothed and nurtured, how could they, God's people, have been turned so corrupt? How could God's people act like this? Well, God says, there's a judgment coming. And I'm going to send to Syria, a foreign power, to punish my own people. And when we read this story right, of the depravity of man, of the rebellion of man, even, they call themselves God's people, and as we see Luther's trip to Rome, we find the same thing, if you will. We find lazy, corrupt, self-indulgent, prideful. Amos is presenting his people with the same problem, if you will, the church at Rome had. The depravity of man. Rebellion. Where do we find the answer to that? Solus Christus. Both of these stories show us, friends, of a need of Christ. A need of His redeeming work. Israel needed Christ as the fulfillment of God's salvific work, and Rome needed to repent and believe the Gospel, friends. The answer is found in Christ and Christ alone. And as we think about this passage and we think about this concept of of Christ alone, salvation alone, I want to lay before you three thoughts. Three thoughts about Christ alone. First, Christ alone means turning from that which brings woe. Repentance. right? When uh, When we see that this chapter starts with the word woe, and then we think about the New Testament, we know that Jesus didn't come and say, don't worry about that word anymore. If anything, woe is up the ante is up jesus pronounces woe on all kinds of things in people right like on the pharisees he pronounces woe on entire cities jesus pronounces woe on the one who would betray him and he pronounces woe on those who love the world like that's a very timely one right like amos is pronouncing woe on people who love the word and here we see christ doing likewise Christ declares God's wrath against sin and rebellion and warns us to flee from the wrath that is to come. Hebrews 10.31 reminds us that it is a fearful thing to fall into hands of a living God. We are to flee from sin and run to Christ because Christ is our true hope, our true assurance of salvation. It is only found in Christ, in Christ alone, if we are to escape woe. Second, Christ alone is the only hope for our salvation from righteous wrath. Christ is the only hope we have from salvation from God's righteous wrath. Would you turn with me to Romans 5? Romans 5 in your copy of God's Word. Romans 5. We'll start in verse 6. And I'll kind of I'll read to 12, and then I'm going to skip down to 18. The um, whole chapter is wonderful. The whole Bible is wonderful. Uh, but for time's sake, we're just going to read these verses. So Romans 5, starting verse 6. For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For rarely will someone die for a person, though for a good person perhaps someone might even dare to die. But God proves His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How much more then, since we have now been justified by His blood, we will be saved through Him from wrath? For if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, then how much more, having been reconciled, will we be saved by His life? And not only that, But we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through Him we have now received this reconciliation. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, in this way death spread to all people, because all sinned. Skip down to 18 for me. So then, as through one trespass there is condemnation for everyone, So also through one righteous act, there is justification leading to life for everyone. For just as through one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So also through one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. The law came along to multiply the trespass. But where sin is multiplied, sin multiplied, grace multiplied even more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace will reign. Through righteousness, resulting in eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Friends, we read in these passages that all of us have inherited the same sin nature that we've read about this morning. We all were born with the same sin nature as Israel, as Rome, as Luther, as as Pope Leo X, right? Leo's or, 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 or Luther's adversary. All of us were born with this sin nature and separated from a holy God. There's nothing we could do to, to save ourselves. Through this one man's disobedience, through Adam's disobedience, sin enters the world. But in Christ, through the God-man's obedience, we are restored to fellowship with God. Through one man's obedience, the many, it says, are made righteous. It is in Christ alone that we are reconciled to God the holy God. Not in being good enough, not in Jesus plus something, but in Christ and Christ alone. Friends, our salvation from damnation and reconciliation to the Father is only found in Christ alone. Third, Christ alone means new life. Christ alone means new life. Now, I've never done this, but I know some of you have. I've heard stories of this. But some of you have had to like pull boats out of the water and like blast the barnacles off the bottom and all the junk that grows when it sits out there in the marina or whatever. And solo Christus, this doctrine of Christ alone, blasts the barnacles from the Christian faith and reminds us that we can't add anything to salvation, right? These barnacles had grown over the years, and when the Reformation comes along, we see this barnacles blasted off and reminded that our salvation, our justification is only found in Christ's righteousness. With that, we also see that the Bible blasts away the barnacles of these ideas that we have been relieved of our obligation as genuine believers, to live in keeping with this new life we have received. True faith in Christ leads the believer to holy living. Leads the believer to obedience. Not to live as Israel was living and not to live as Rome was living, but true faith in Christ manifests itself in holiness. And you say, but doesn't that put the emphasis on me and not on Christ? Doesn't it make it about what I do? You just said it's not Christ plus my work that saves you, and I say yes. You're not saving yourself by your obedience. Your obedience is a result of your salvation. Friends, we have to think rightly about what we have received. Some might interpret Christ alone to deny the Trinity. Indeed, some Pentecostal people only believe in Jesus and not the Father and the Spirit. Roman Catholics have argued that the five solos is dumb because how can you have five things that are alone? Well, they're not thinking about the nuances of what we're saying. And I don't have the time to go into that right now. But we have to think rightly when we say Christ alone. A new life that is the product of Christ's work and found in Christ alone and according to Christ's merit and our righteous living post-conversion are not incompatible doctrines. Right? Like we are not saved by our work, we are saved by Christ, but the byproduct of that salvation is a desire and an effort to live a holy life. Those two things are not incompatible. Some internet theologians might cross their arms and and disagree with me and say, well, Luther would disagree. Would he? Bear with me one moment. This is from Luther's, some stuff he wrote about, about creeds and councils. He says this, my friends, the antinomians, and an antinomian is someone who is anti law, like namas being law, anti, anti law, so they are someone who shrugs off sin because they say they have Christ. He says, My friends, the antinomians preach exceedingly well. I cannot but believe they do so with great earnestness concerning the mercy of Christ, the forgiveness of sin, and other contents, the article of redemption. But they flee from this inference. As from the devil, that they must tell people about the third article, that is, sanctification. That is, of the new life in Christ. For they hold that we must not terrify people and make them sorrowful, but always preach to them comfort and grace and Christ and the forgiveness of sin. They tell us to avoid, for God's sake, such statements as these. This is the statement. Listen. You want to be a Christian while you are an adulterer, a fornicator, swill belly, full of pride, greedy, outrageous practices, envy, revenge, and nastiness? And mean to continue in these sins? He says, they say, don't say that. On the contrary, they tell us this is the proper way to say, listen, if you're an adulterer, a fornicator, a miser, addicted to some other sin, if you will just believe, you are saved, and you need not dread the law, for Christ is fulfilled at all. Luther goes on to say this, tell me, pray thee, Does this not amount to conceding the premise and denying the conclusion? Verily, it amounts to this. That Christ is taken away and made worthless in the same breath with which he is most highly extolled. It means to say yes and no in the same sentence. For a Christ who died for sinners, who after receiving forgiveness, will not quit their sin or lead a new life, is worthless and does not exist. For Christ has gained for us not only grace, but the gift of the Holy Ghost, so that we obtain from Him not only the forgiveness of sins, but also the ceasing from sin. Anyone, therefore, who does not cease from his sin, but continues in his former evil way, must have obtained a different Christ. Friends, there is a new way of living that comes with true faith in Christ. But you say, that's Luther. What does he know? Okay. Open your Bibles back up to Romans 6. Romans 6, starting in verse 1. Paul has just told us about this wonderful salvation that we receive in Christ alone, that through Adam, this one man, we have all received a a nature of disobedience, but obedience and righteousness are found in Christ, And then he goes on to say, what should we say then? Should we continue in sin that grace may multiply? Absolutely not. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Are you, not, are you unaware that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore we were buried with him by the baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too may walk in newness of life? For if we have been united with him in the likeness of his death, we will certainly also be in the likeness of his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be rendered powerless so that we may no longer be enslaved to sin since a person who has died is freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him because we know that Christ, having been raised from the dead, Will not die again. Death no longer rules over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once and for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you too consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Jesus Christ, in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies so that you obey its desires. And do not offer any part of it to sin as weapons for unrighteousness. But as those who are alive from the dead, offer yourselves to God and all the parts of yourselves to God as weapons for righteousness, for sin will not rule over you because you are not under the law, but under grace. Paul says, if you are in Christ, and if you are trusting in Christ alone, you will not continue in unrepentant sin. You will flee from sin. You will repent from sin. You will, not make, it, you will make it a habit of mortifying your sins. Friends, why do I hammer this home? One, because I believe it's in our text. But two, because I read an article this week that said the Western church's biggest issue, the thing we need to reform the most, our biggest academic is antinomianism. That we think because we pray to prayer one time, we can do whatever we want. Preachers don't preach holiness with the salvation of Christ like those that Luther spoke about. But the Bible is clear when Christ grants us a new life by His salvific work, that person is Changed. And so very quickly, I just have two points of application this week. Two very quick points of application. Two things that we need to accept and embrace in light of the fact that there is no way around this holy God, this righteous judge that we will all stand before one day. And the two things are this. First, you are saved by Christ and Christ alone. You can never earn your salvation. You can never be good enough. Only the God-man Jesus alone was good enough. He walked the perfect life. He laid down the perfect sacrifice for sin. Christ alone raised from the dead and ascended to the Father's right hand. All of us were born with a nature like the first Adam. And all of those who have repented and believe now have the righteousness of the second Adam, Christ. And it is only His righteousness that will reconcile us to the father friends salvation is of Christ alone and you must repent and believe this gospel if you have not repented and believed this gospel today is the day repent and believe turn in your mind confess your sin turn in your mind to Christ believe that gospel and follow him so the first thing is that salvation is Christ alone the second is that those who are saved by Christ alone have died to sin If we are alive to God through Christ, if we profess to be alive to God through Christ, we are freed from sin's dominion and called to exert ourselves. Yes, I said, exert yourself in the pursuit of holiness. Not to save yourself, but because God has worked in your life, you are to mortify sin in sustained obedience. J.I. Packer says that this, God's method of sanctification is neither activism nor apathy, but God-dependent effort. In other words, sanctification is not, well, I'm just sitting here, God, make me holy. I'm going to keep watching this pornography till you change my mind. I'm going to keep on cussing. I'm going to keep on fighting with people. I'm going to, I'm going to keep on lying and stealing and cheating and doing all the things I do unless you, unless you just zap me. Tell me you don't have a new heart without telling me you don't have a new heart. Because the one who has the new heart is going to desire to say, God, what in the world am I doing with this? Get it away from me. I can't go to that place because I talk in a way so it doesn't honor you, Lord, so I'm not going to go. And if you're a Christian, you are called in God-dependent effort to sustained obedience. We have been confronted here in this with two stories of the people who claim to be the people of God yet don't live that way. And Christ alone is the answer to both. The Roman church and the northern kingdom had similar problems. They claimed to know God but lived depraved lifestyles. Amos' message to Israel was not that they needed to keep on claiming to be God's people, but that they needed to repent and turn from what they were doing. Luther didn't walk into Rome and come back and say, guys, you know, they're affirming the wrong doctrines in Rome. He said they claim to be in union with Christ and unite themselves to prostitutes. And Paul talked about that. Dark period for Israel, dark period for the church. Friend, we must repent and believe the gospel. Reformation in the 16th century meant recovering justification by faith in faith alone and Christ alone. Reformation in the 21st century might mean recovering the pursuit of holiness and living for Christ claiming to be in him alone. My prayer is that the light of the true gospel would shine bright again. God, may the church in the West reform herself once again. And may the truth of your gospel and the truth of your word shine true. May we be found treasuring free salvation that is given in Christ alone, but also may we be found obedient, pursuing holiness and the power of the Spirit and the praise for your name. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.